Please pray with me. Father, we come to you in our need. And Father, we know that you provide our need through your word. We know that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to lay bare the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so ask, we ask, Father, that you would send your spirit in this hour to do that. Father, to bring conviction, to bring encouragement, to bring building up in Christ. Father, that all of our hope would indeed be in Christ, whether in life or in death. And Father, that you would be glorified in your people as this becomes increasingly our hope. It is in your Son's name that we ask. Amen. I trust that most of you have heard of the so-called problem of evil. In essence, the problem of evil is the objection to biblical Christianity that the idea of an all-good and all-powerful God is at odds with the reality of the existence of evil in the world. Now let me just say that I agree with Jay Adams in his book on the topic, The Grand Demonstration, when he writes this that the so-called problem of evil is in no sense a problem at all, except as proud sinners make it so. He supports this contention by explaining that Scripture gives a clear answer to the supposed problem. He continues, God has revealed himself concerning this matter, and he has done so unequivocally, satisfyingly. However, as you may well know from your own experiences with family, co-workers, or neighbors, this hasn't kept the problem of evil from being a top reason many unbelievers give for their unbelief. And that is, of course, part of the reason why Jay Adams saw fit to write a whole book on the subject. Indeed, the whole world is full of people who need a biblical answer to how it is that we who were created and given stewardship of this very good creation by an all-good, loving God, how it is that we live in a world where it seems that the worst evils violence, sexual sin, murder, exploitation, how these horrible atrocities are so often committed against those, including women and children, who are seemingly without guile. How can this be, many wonder? Is it just senseless? Is it somehow outside of God's control or outside of his plan? Of course, the Bible knows that we need these answers, which helps explain why parts of the text we've covered in Genesis so far have repeatedly addressed aspects of the so-called problem of evil. Just to refresh our memories, in Genesis 1, we saw that although God is directly credited with the creation of light, that darkness is simply present where God's light is absent. And I pointed out that a similar idea seems to be present in Ezekiel 28, where God refers to the day when unrighteousness was first found in Satan. It's written there in Ezekiel 28, verse 15, that the angel, specifically the cherub, who would become the power behind the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, that he was blameless in his ways from the day God created him until unrighteousness was found in him. You see, just as darkness simply exists where God's light is absent, even so unrighteousness or evil is found where God's goodness or his righteousness is absent. Later in chapter 3, we read of how Satan, that one in whom unrighteousness had been found, Satan showed up in the garden and solicited similar unrighteousness and rebellion from the heart of Eve and then from Adam as well. As they disobeyed God's life-giving command and ate 
of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. That text explained the entrance of evil into creation and some of its consequences in our experience. But it also showed what repentance looked like as Adam and Eve were reconciled to God and to each other by faith in the promise he made there. But then, in our last sermon, from the first eight verses of chapter 4, we saw the events that led up to and included an even more heinous sin, the first murder, perpetrated by Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn, against Abel, his brother. And what we saw from that text was the startling ease with which Cain's heart of false worship led him to the worst kind of sin imaginable. Now, what we haven't seen yet is God's response to Abel's murder. And as we see that response unfold in today's text, we're going to be helped a little further along the path of understanding the Bible's answer to the supposed problem of evil. The net result of our text today is that we're going to see that God apparently is content, at least for a time, to let a hardened, unrepentant murderer continue to live in his world. Now realize that all the questions we might have about why this is may not be answered from our text today. But this text does offer us another sort of building block as we work to form our understanding of God's purposes in his sovereign providence over evil in the world. As we study these verses, what we're going to see is God's holy patience in response to Cain's unrepentant sin. And what this is going to offer us is a combination of hope and warning when it comes to the reality of the hardened hearts that exist in our midst. And so if you haven't already, please turn to Genesis chapter 4 and stand with me as I read verses 9 to 16. This is the word of God from Genesis 4, starting with verse 9. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as I said, what we will learn in this text is that God's holy patience in response to Cain's unrepentant sin offers us understanding, hope, and warning. In our study this morning, we're going to find this in four parts. On the outline in your bulletin, you will see the four experiences of the hardened heart that offer both warning and hope relative to unrepentant sinners. Now, to be clear, I want to point out at the start that two of these experiences, numbers one and three, find their source in man. They find their source in Cain. The other two, numbers two and four, find their source in God's providential decree. But all four, as it says there, can be said to be the experiences of the hardened heart. 
So let's look now at the text, starting with verse 9, where we find experience number one, the hardened heart's flippant response. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Now, in order to appreciate what's happening here, let's think back for a moment on the context. Earlier in the chapter, God warned Cain that sin would overpower him if he didn't master it. In this, as we saw, God was offering Cain the way of escape. And do you remember what Cain did? He rejected the way of escape and committed the first murder. He killed Abel, his own brother, in cold blood. Now, with all of that having taken place, God approaches Cain by first asking him this question. And as you may recall from chapter 3, this is the same way God approached Adam and Eve after the fall. Do you remember what he was doing there? He was seeking to draw a confession from Adam and Eve, which he ended up doing, to lead them in the first steps towards repentance. And as I noted there, something many of you have heard repeatedly around here, accusations harden the heart, but questions convict the conscience. So now realize that even though Cain has decisively rejected the way of escape, and of course God knows that this is the case, God is still coming to him and approaching him in this way with a question rather than an accusation seeking to solicit his confession. Here is another undeserved opportunity for Cain, an opportunity to respond by confessing his sin and casting himself on the mercy of God. But that's not what happens. Let's look at how Cain actually does respond, continuing in verse 9. And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? There are two parts of Cain's response here. And you see from what I put on the outline that I've characterized what he says generally as a flippant response. To grasp the significance of this, think for a moment about what Cain would know about God. As the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, Cain would have grown up hearing of God's dealings with them, first in giving them stewardship of the whole creation which he had made, and then of how he had dealt with them after they had disobeyed him at the fall. And then, of course, there's the fact that Cain had the personal interaction with God of which we read back in the earlier part of the chapter. And so Cain knows that Yahweh is the all-powerful, and all-knowing creator. What's more, he knows from his parents' experience that Yahweh is patient and forgiving towards those who have sinned, but who will turn back to him in faith. And so, realizing that Cain knows all of this about him, consider his first words, Cain's first words in response to God's question, where is Abel your brother? Cain says, I do not know. How would you describe Cain's statement? It's a lie, right? Cain's first impulse is to cover his own sin by lying to God. And then, quickly, he follows up his lie with a question. Am I my brother's keeper? Friends, it's hard to overstate the impertinence of what Cain is doing here. He's just murdered his brother, and God is questioning him about it. First, he lies, and then he asks this question as if to shift the blame or the onus back onto God as if it's unreasonable for God to question him on this. And he does this by dramatically overstating the implications of God's question. God is asking Cain where his brother is, not because Cain is constantly responsible for the location and the well-being of his brother, but because God knows that Cain has just committed murder, and he's giving him this opportunity to confess. So now, consider the flippancy and the impertinence of Cain's response here in contrast with these words from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 
And what Solomon has in view here is the seriousness or the solemnity with which a person should consider being in the presence of God. Solomon writes this, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Clearly, and Solomon is pointing this out here as a matter of common sense, if you are in the presence of Almighty God, you should be humble and circumspect and deferential. Instead, we see in Cain's response that he is deceitful, disrespectful, and flippant. You see, what's happening here is what God had warned of. Cain failed to master sin, and so it is overpowering him. With these words, Cain defies all common sense and doubles down in his rebellion, in hard-hearted, bold-faced defiance of God. He has taken what might have been an opportunity to confess his sin, and instead he has thrown it back in God's face. This is experience number one of the hardened heart. Having refused the way of escape and having been confronted with his guilt, Cain refuses to confess his sin and instead offers a flippant and hardened response. Continuing in verse 10, we find that Cain's voice is not alone in coming to God's ears at this point. <clears throat> and this brings us to experience number two, the hardened heart's painful judgment. God says to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God's question here is rhetorical. He addresses Cain here, and as he does so, he's doing so in part in response to Abel's cry for justice. This is what we should gather from God's words about Abel's blood crying to him from the ground. Abel here becomes a biblical model for those who, like the martyred saints in Revelation, whose blood has been unjustly shed. Here is their cry before God's throne in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the cry for justice of murdered saints against their murderers. And Yahweh God, who is righteous and holy and just, God hears the cry of Abel's blood. And he responds in verses 10 and 11 by charging Cain with blood guiltiness concerning his brother, Abel. Now before we move on to the rest of God's response, let me just build out a little further how the description of Abel's blood here becomes a paradigm for the cry of the innocent. Now, we won't have time to survey everything the Bible has to say on this, but I trust that many of you are well familiar with the fact of imprecatory prayers in Scripture. These include parts of the Psalms that we sometimes hesitate to use in our prayers. For example, in Psalm 139, in between the parts we like to pray and memorize about God knitting us together in our mother's wombs and how we want God to search us and know our hearts and our anxious thoughts, in between those verses, we read these words. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, do you notice some of the commonalities there with our text? The cry of the righteous here is against those who are guilty of bloodshed. And this righteous cry is that God would slay the wicked. The point here is that this impulse, and we see this again throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms, 
this imprecatory impulse as reflected throughout the Bible starts with those whose innocent blood has been shed at the hands of the wicked. This is what is rising to God's ears from the voice of Abel's blood. Now also significant here is that the voice of Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. This becomes a recurring issue throughout the Old Testament that the ground or the land in which God would dwell with his people under covenant, under his promise, it's often spoken of as polluted. And God's holiness demands that such pollution be dealt with according to certain standards. For example, in Numbers chapter 35, having just explained how those who commit manslaughter were to be dealt with relative to the cities of refuge, God gives these instructions in verses 33 and 34. He says this, So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. God speaks along similar lines with regard to the Canaanites, whose pollution of the land was leading him to bring Israel into the land, even as he used them to bring the Canaanites out. From Leviticus chapter 18, starting with verse 26, God says this to Israel, But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. Now again, we don't have a ton of time to spend on this, but let me just point out one of the clearest ways in which the Canaanites were polluting the land with innocent blood. And some of you may have this in mind already, that part of their worship, particularly to the god known as Molech, was the practice of child sacrifice, innocent blood being spilled in huge amounts. And yes, let me just point out further that there is good reason to draw a connection between the child sacrifice practiced in Canaanite worship to Molech and the child sacrifice practiced where we live in the form of hundreds of thousands of abortions performed each year in our country. And of course, that's in worship of various gods, including pleasure, convenience, and self-preservation. Beloved, God has always heard the cry of the blood of innocence. And this injustice, the injustice of abortion in our land, is not lost on him. And his judgment against this present injustice is just as certain as the judgment he's about to bring against Cain here. This judgment begins to take shape as God continues in verse 11. Starting with just the first four words in our English Bible, God says to Cain, Now you are cursed. You might recall one of the details from chapter 3 relative to the curses that God hands down there. Do you remember who or what God cursed after the fall? God cursed first the serpent, and then he cursed the ground. But who didn't he curse? Man. Man wasn't cursed there. And so here, with these first four words, comes a major departure. Whereas God had spared Adam and Eve the worst consequences of their rebellion and had covered them at his own expense with the blood of one of his animals, here God leaves Cain to bear God's curse himself. Cain is cursed, God continues in verse 11, from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now, part of the reason I took the time to explain the issue of pollution of the land and how that related to Canaan's and then to Israel's time in the land is because I think these dynamics can help us understand what's going on here in terms of the judgment God is decreeing against Cain. And there are two aspects to this. First, what we find in the narrative here demonstrates that even after the fall, God allows people to dwell where he is in some sense present with them, to bless them and to have fellowship with them. We see that even though Adam and Eve had been expelled from Eden, where they had enjoyed the full and unmediated presence of God, the first part of chapter 4 describes how after God's promise and provision for them and their response of faith, that Adam and Eve, together with their sons, continued to enjoy God's mediated presence and fellowship, even though they had been kicked out of Eden. Secondly, it's apparent here that an aspect of being allowed to dwell in this way as God's people is to live under his blessing. Like we see later when he promises that the land where he dwells with Israel will be a land flowing with milk and honey, the privilege of living in God's mediated presence as his people is connected throughout Scripture with the idea of an abundant fruitfulness to be enjoyed in that place. And so Yahweh's pronouncement here includes that Cain will be cut off from this abundance going forward. And so Cain's painful judgment is a matter of being excluded not just from Eden, but also from this place outside of Eden, where until now, together with his family, he has enjoyed God's mediated presence. Cain will no longer live under the blessings he knew there, including the fellowship of those who are still allowed to dwell there. This is the second experience of the hardened heart. Having given his flippant response, Cain here is met with God's painful judgment. Moving into verse 13, it seems that God now has Cain's attention. Whereas Cain's previous response was easily seen to be flippant and careless, this response, even from the first few words, is evidently full of pain and sorrow. Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Continuing in verse 14, Cain goes on to list the elements he has understood from the judgment handed down to him. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. There are four parts to Cain's lament here. First, in keeping with what we saw in God's words in verses 11 and 12, Cain is upset that he will be expelled from the place where he has until now been allowed to live with the rest of his family, where he had enjoyed God's blessing as reflected in the fruitfulness of the land. And so Cain despairs at being cut off from these privileges. Secondly, Cain despairs at being cut off from God's loving presence. This is what is reflected in his words, and from your face I will be hidden. And being cast out from the place where God's people live under his blessing, under his covering for their sin, which we saw beginning back in chapter 3, Cain will now be excluded from the place where God forgives and lovingly blesses his people. Thirdly, Cain repeats these words from God, And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. In recognition of the fact that he is cut off from the rest of his family, who would be allowed to continue to live where they had originally settled, in this place east of Eden, and that he is also cut off from the blessing he had known of the fertile land in that place, Cain despairs over his exclusion, both from God's people and from the abundance of their land. Finally, Cain says, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
It would seem at this moment that Cain's mind perhaps goes back to the promise Yahweh made to the serpent in chapter 3. Do you remember what he said there about the enmity God promised to put between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed? You should start to realize at this point, and this is going to become even clearer as we move to the end of this chapter and into chapters 5 and 6, that these seeds are becoming evident. Namely, Abel was the seed of the woman, and Cain is the seed of the serpent. And perhaps it's hitting Cain only now that the rest of his family, the rest of the known world, is living in fellowship with one another in the place of God's mediated presence and blessing. Between the fact of God's righteous condemnation and the fact that the entire rest of the world's population would be on God's side against Cain, this would seem to be a logical conclusion that anyone who is righteous, Adam or any of his sons, would see Cain in the earth, that they would know what he had done to his brother, and that they would be right to take his life as righteous vengeance against Cain. Now we're going to deal with some of those things in a moment when we get to God's next response in verse 15, but first, I want to point out something about these four elements of Cain's response. As I said, and as it says in your outline, Cain's response is one of sorrow, but and this is an important biblical truth, there is more than one kind of sorrow experienced by sinners who are surveying the consequences of their sin. I want you to turn for a moment in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7. In 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10, we find a description of godly sorrow in contrast specifically with what Paul calls worldly sorrow. Starting in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, we read this. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Do you see here the contrast between godly sorrow and the kind of worldly sorrow evidenced by Cain? Godly sorrow, Paul says, is repentant. It doesn't have regret for worldly loss. It is most concerned not with self-preservation, but with seeing wrong avenged and God's righteousness vindicated. This is in total contrast with Cain's sorrowful response. Rather than becoming zealous for God's righteousness, Cain is showing a zeal only for his own comfort and life and well-being. Now, let me point out, sorrow over sin and its consequences is an experience that is common to all of us. Proverbs 13 verse 15 tells us that the way of the transgressor is hard. Whether it's feelings of guilt or physical consequences or relationship consequences, or financial consequences, God sees to it in a whole host of ways through his providence that the wages of sin are unpleasant. They're hard. Ultimately, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And from time to time, and really I'm sure more often than we'd like, when we see that we've sinned and we face some of the consequences, we feel this. And so, what is to keep us from responding like Cain, with a kind of sorrow that regrets only worldly loss and difficulty? 
Well, first, considering what we read a moment ago from 2 Corinthians 7, we can seek with the Lord's help to cultivate hearts that value God's righteousness and the glory of his name more than the things we might lose in the world. We can ask God to give us hearts that are willing to lose even our lives for the sake of the gospel, remembering what Jesus says, that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We can seek with God's help to imitate Paul in Philippians chapter 3, as Pastor Dan pointed out last week, who was willing to count all of his worldly advantages, all of his privileges, all of his worldly good as loss for the sake of Christ. And we can even take practical steps, steps that might risk or sacrifice whatever we have to give, things like our time, our money, our safety, our plans, our reputation, our rights, or even our jobs. We can take these risks and make these sacrifices knowing that Jesus says that wherever we put our treasure, there our hearts will be also. Beloved, it is so important that we take steps like these in an effort to move away from worldly regret, from the kind of worldly sorrow we find in Cain, and towards the repentance and treasuring Christ above all things that characterize godly sorrow. When we taste the difficulty that comes as a result of sin, and again, that is a universal experience. We all experience that. Rather than hardening our hearts and being upset and regretful over worldly loss, we can thank our Father in heaven who is disciplining us as his children. This is the response we want our hearts to have to the small tastes of God's judgment that he allows us to receive as we continue to live in this world that is under curse. Now, I want us to turn our attention back to Cain's sorrow. As I mentioned already, Cain's fear that his own life would be taken in vengeance by whoever he might encounter his fear that this would happen actually makes a lot of sense if seen in the right light. Yes, God had shown forbearance and mercy and patience when, with Adam and Eve when they had sinned, but Cain's sin is on an entirely different level. Surely God won't simply kill an animal and cover Cain who is hardened in his unrepentance, will he? On the contrary, it would seem, he'll do to Cain what Adam and Eve expected him to do to them and take his physical life here and now, delivering him immediately to the eternal death so much deserved by a hardened murderer. But in verse 15, we find that is not what God does. Rather, we find experience number four, the hardened heart's enduring presence. So Yahweh said to Cain, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, not only does God not kill Cain immediately, he even makes it so that no one else will kill Cain. Whereas Abel's life was cut short in violence, God is going to allow Cain to live on. Although, although God later establishes laws in Israel allowing close relatives of murder victims to execute vengeance, in this case, not even Abel's close relatives will be allowed to exact justice against Cain by taking his life. God's words and actions in this reflect three aspects of our reality and his justice. First, God's plan. Established in the promise he made back in chapter 3, verse 15, God's plan clearly calls for the seed of the serpent 
to coexist in the world and at enmity with the seed of the woman until one day the ultimate seed of the woman, the Messiah, will bring everything to its final conclusion. And as I said earlier, we will see this reality continue to work itself out in its early stages as we move into the next couple chapters of Genesis. So God's willingness first to preserve Cain and his line has to do with the fact that God is patiently working out his plan. Secondly, God's pronouncement here, and this is related, of course, to his plan, his pronouncement and provision for Cain in verses 15 and 16 reflect the fact that vengeance, that the carrying out of justice, is something that God reserves for himself. This is a truth of which we find probably the clearest expression in Romans 12, verse 19, where Paul writes this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This can be a hard word. Abel's blood cries out for justice. The martyred saints in Revelation 6 ask, How long, O Lord? Our hearts cry that too sometimes. What is God's response? Wait. Have patience. I will work it out in my time, and every wrong will be made right. And so, when we look out at the world and see sin reigning, and every kind of injustice seemingly going unpunished, we don't need to be anxious. We do not need to fret that the wicked seem to prosper. We can dwell in the land and do good, trusting that vengeance, that justice belongs to God, and that he will bring it in his due time. Beloved, he is faithful. He's not going to fail in this. He hears the cry of innocent blood, and his judgment is not asleep. Thirdly, and finally, in God's words and actions here with Cain, we find that God is willing, at least for a time, to allow the worst kind of unrepentant and hardened sinner to continue to live in his world. You may recall we opened our service this morning with a reading from Matthew chapter 13, which included Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, or if you're looking at the ESV like Rod was reading, the wheat and the weeds. Do you recall that they asked, I'm sorry, do you remember the words of the landowner's servants when they realized that an enemy had sown tares among the wheat? Recall that they asked whether the tares should be rooted up and removed from the field. What was the landowner's response? He said, no. The tares should be allowed for the time being to grow alongside the wheat. Why? Because there was a risk of mistaking some of the wheat for tares. The truth is, in some stages of growth, tares can look a lot like wheat. And recall, in the later verses we read, Jesus identifies the wheat with the sons of the kingdom and the tares with the sons of the devil. His implication is that too often the sons of the kingdom can resemble the sons of the evil one. And I imagine that may make sense to you. Of course, we're all sinners. There are probably very few objections to that truth in this room. But what about hardened and unrepentant murderers? Yes, the Bible says, even hardened and unrepentant murderers, who for a time can look distressingly like sons of the evil one, can in fact be sons of the kingdom. That is, they might repent. 
At this point, I have in mind, by way of illustration, one particular sinner, Israel's King David. When David committed his terrible sin with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, he knew that it was wrong. What was his first impulse when the undeniable evidence of his sin was brought to his attention? When his servants came and told him that another man's wife was pregnant with his child, did he confess his sin and repent? Did he cast himself immediately on God's mercy? No, he went further into his sin. He sought to cover his sin by bringing that man home from battle, hoping that he would lay with his wife and believe that the child was his own. And when that didn't work, then did David, seeing that God wasn't letting him off so easy, did he finally humble himself and give up his efforts to cover his sin? No, he hardened his heart further. He arranged for Uriah, that innocent man who, unlike David, was fulfilling his duty to his country. David arranged for Uriah's murder at the hands of Israel's enemies. And he succeeded. Having tried and failed in more than one way with lying and scheming to cover his own sin, David finally took the step of spilling innocent blood. In the wake of this, David hardened his heart so thoroughly he kept silent about his sin. He hardened his heart so thoroughly that he says in Psalm 32 that his body wasted away through his groaning all day long and that his vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And yet, as he had done with hardened and unrepentant murderers since Cain, Yahweh let David live. And unlike with Cain, God granted David repentance giving us a key biblical example of God's overwhelming grace towards even the worst kind of hardened sinner. Now this sort of brings us back full circle to where we started with the problem of evil. The key text that Jay Adams unfolds in his book on this topic is Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. In these verses, Paul deals with the concern that God's righteousness could be called into question. Since he who made all men, the just and the wicked alike, has appointed some to eternal life and some to condemnation. Paul writes in verse 22 of Romans 9, What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? Why is it, you might ask Paul, that God is willing to patiently endure vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Paul's answer, verse 23, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Why is there evil in the world? Why are wicked, hardened sinners allowed to continue to live here despite the lament of the victims of their heinous sin? Ultimately, so that God's mercy might be made known. As I've said repeatedly, we find both warning and hope in what takes place in our text this morning. And as long as you have breath, you need to see both the warning and the hope and let them both have their full effect in your heart. Because the truth is, you have sinned against a God who is holy and just. And the people you have wronged and the creation that is cursed on your account, they would all cry out together against you together with the holy and just God against whom you've sinned. 
this cry against you is a cry for justice. And it is a just cry. It is a righteous cry. And it would be justly satisfied with your eternal death. Friends, that is true for each one of us, and it was true for King David. And so how was it that David obtained mercy? King David obtained mercy the same way Adam and Eve and Abel did, and the same way that is available to you this morning, by faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 24 puts this in stark terms as it reaches all the way back to our text from this morning when it says that if we have come to Jesus, that we have come to the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Have you ever wondered what that means? What does it mean that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Friends, Jesus was the ultimate innocent, put to death at the hands of guilty sinners. But unlike Abel's blood, which justly calls for the condemnation of the guilty, Jesus' blood calls for sinners' forgiveness. If you want to hear this in more detail, you can listen to part four from our Sunday school series from a few months ago on God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness and our curse. As I explained more thoroughly in that lesson, the way the Bible works out the themes of guilt polluting the land and how that guilt is removed, and then Jesus' position as king of his people and his death on the cross, the Bible uses these things to show that for all who have Jesus as king, all for whom he is our representative, that his blood, rather than calling for our condemnation, speaks of the fact that our pollution has been removed. We are sprinkled clean by his blood. We are forgiven. And friend, if you have not known this forgiveness, if you have not had your heart softened and cleansed by this sprinkled blood until now, I urge you to repent today and to come to Christ by faith. And let me just say that I would be eager and many others in this room would be eager to talk with you more personally about how God's patience in giving you life and allowing you to live even with a hardened heart has mercifully brought you to this point today where you can hear this word about Jesus' blood in comparison with Abel's. And for the rest of you, for those who have had your heart sprinkled clean by Jesus' blood, which calls for your forgiveness rather than your condemnation, will you not now renew your resolve to bring the good news of this forgiveness to as many as will listen to your voice in the week ahead? Brothers and sisters, I hope you join me in thanking God for his patience and that you are reminded of it afresh this morning. There was a time when it would have made sense for each one of us to be plucked up and cast away as a tear. Again, let us bring this message to anyone who will listen. If David's heart could be softened, and Paul's heart, and your heart, and my heart, then there is not a heart in this world that we can know for sure won't be softened by the truth of this gospel. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your glorious mercy and your glorious grace, your patience with us. Father, the worst kinds of evil proceeds from our hearts. And we need the blood of Jesus to sprinkle us clean and remove our pollution. We thank you, Father, that you have made that provision and we thank you for the display of it that we're about to witness. 
Father, we ask that you would bless us, that you would cover us with your blood, that you would grant repentance and faith to each and every soul in this room. We ask in Jesus' name.